Welcome back, everyone. So today I'm super excited. This is an interview while I've been wanting to do as long as I've been making audio on the internet. So I'm joined by musician, lyricist, and vocalist of seminal Australian rock band, The Butterfly Effect, Clint Boge. Welcome to the show, Clint. Hey, mate. How are you? I'm going great. And I'm not going to gush too much, but I did say in the pre-interview that I had met Clint in person a few times. His band at the time was touring and I was managing a few of the gigs. But I was hoping we could start somewhere else, slightly (laughs) tangential to that. You guys were the first band that I'd ever met that had heard of the band Dredge. And they were a band that I thought that, oh, they're not well known, but they seem to be influencing a lot of bands, whether they're aware of it or not. Did the band Dredge have any influence on early Butterfly Effect or early Clint? And if not, who were you influenced by when you first got into vocals and songwriting? Yeah, that's a good question, man. We we love Dredge. We found them just by accident. Kurt actually got told about them and, and found one of their CDs in a bargain bin in, you know, some <laughs> CD shop way back in the day. I think we were actually like a, a, in Perth or somewhere like that. And I remember he put it on in the van and everyone lost their minds because it was this amazing blend of like Tool and um, Deftones and we could hear like, you know, uh, this amazing writing sensibility and this this just this depth and we just immediately gripped to it. It was so good. The lyrics were amazing. The vocal styling was incredible. It was the best bits of all these bands that we loved. <laughs> and so I think, I don't know if it influenced us directly, but I think definitely uh, it would have influenced Kurt's writing to be a little bit more fearless and a little braver when venturing into uh, probably the prog side of things into breakdowns and middle sections and certainly the musicality of where we could go with it. So I think in that terms, in those terms, yes, we were definitely influenced somewhat by that, even via proxy. But they're they're amazing. And the guys actually got to see them when they came out to Australia uh, years ago. And they said it was really disappointing that the crowd wasn't bigger for them. Mm. Um, But also we were looking for this there was a lot, so we've got El Celio and, and the next one, but there's the third one that we listened to when we were in Europe. Um, and we were, I remember we were driving into Paris and we were playing the album and everyone was just quiet because, you know, it was just one of those things. But we can't remember the name of it and we can't find it. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so if anyone can help us with that, that'd be great. We'd love a copy. It's funny you mentioned maybe the lack of crowd because I saw them for the only time that I have seen them. They were on very early on Soundwave. And I think they might have had the 11.30 slot or something. Mm, that's right. And we didn't actually end up getting through the line and get in until about halfway through their set. No. And I don't want to exaggerate. There probably wouldn't have been more than 100 people watching them. Yeah. And it was yeah. one of the greatest vocal performances I've ever seen. Like, mm. I literally just had goosebumps from the second I turned up. Like, he, yeah. as great as his voice was on record, I could see why their reputation was so incredible live. Because his mm. voice just floored every person that was there. <laughs> and yeah. I think part of it was, as much as they had that proggy influence, and this maybe ties back into Butterfly Effect and your other projects, they left enough room for the singer to be able to sing. 100%. And <laughs> you know what's interesting? It's something that Richard Kingsmill at Triple J said to me once. He said, the reason why I like the Butterfly Effect so much is what you guys leave in the spaces in between. And I call that musical glue. So, uh, basically, it's in between the individual sound waves. There's like these negative spaces that fit. And it's like, you know, if you really like get microscopic on it, that's what I'm talking about. But also, it's uh, a lot of bands, I think, fill up all the the space with unnecessary 
you know, in different instruments or, you know, like poly polyrhythms and, and inverted chords and all that stuff works great if it's mixed well. But sometimes I think just, you know, getting back to like that four piece sound where it is just guitar, bass, drums and a vocalist is there's something simplistic and very obtainable and it's a t you can really grip to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that is the essence of what I remember rock and roll being all about. Yeah. Um, and certainly with other influences for, for us, I know Ben and Kurt were heavily influenced by Silverchair. They love Silverchair and Helmet. Uh, I was really influenced by, um, in the heavy genre, was uh, Faith No More. To me, Mike Patton was, you know, the quintessential vocalist who could do it all. He yeah. could, like, sing opera. He could go from, like, you know, <laughs> mad screams to, like, this beautiful- has got this beautiful timbre in his voice and he could do it all. So, I think- and we were- we had this massive array of influences, but before that, for me, it was, like, Peter Gabriel and Tori Amos and Jeff Buckley, all the vocalists, Elton John, you know what I mean? Um, but and that like brought me to a place. But you know, when I heard Iron Maiden for the first time, that blew my head off, and I was just like, "Whoa, <laughs> yeah. this is like rock opera. This is metal opera." You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so those things really influenced me as as a band. I think the boys certainly were influenced by Silverchair and Helmet quite a bit. Uh, Sepultura, Pantera. You know, we just want to make loud music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you, you definitely achieved that. So we yeah. we just got onto the vocal thing. And I remember you and I had a conversation and I was pretty dusty that morning, but it was outside the Albrewodonga kebab shop, which many bands have spent the morning at when they tour through town. And I was just fascinated how you managed to capture such incredible vocal performances, particularly on that first EP when most bands, that's probably the thing they would rush at the end and not give enough mm. time to. And I remember you said two things. One was I worked my butt off, but also- yeah the importance of a producer to maybe get things out of you you didn't even know you were capable of. Can we speak to that when it comes to, you know, vocals and how important it is to have someone draw it out of you? Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. I think I was certainly pushed to almost breaking point by uh, Dave, our, who was our manager at the time, off the EP and Begins Here. And I had a chorus, I think case in point, you know, I had a chorus for Beautiful Mind which was literally just I was singing again and again and again like that. And Dave like, man, that's that's boring. What are you doing? And he made me leave and go home. I left the studio in the like mid-afternoon. I didn't get to sleep till maybe two, three in the morning working on this chorus. That became Beautiful Mind. And I went back. I drove back to the studio. I was living on the Gold Coast, so that's an hour away. I got back to the studio at 10. I think I had a few hours sleep and I sang Beautiful Mind twice. And he goes, that's it, you're done, go home. And I was like, thank God, because my eyes were hanging out of my head. <laughs> so, it pushed me. And th that emotion that you're hearing is, is you know, a singer essentially breaking down, super tired, just really at the end of my emotional tether, so to speak, and just, you know, pouring onto these lyrics. Yeah. But I think the the beauty is the, the what we came away with. So, you definitely need someone to push and pull and know how to get the best out of you because some musicians are very lazy in their approach and some musicians need to be told when to stop. Mm. And so, like, you know, there's a few of us that fall in the middle ground that can kind of work that out for ourselves. But I think you always need a just somebody with an independent ear, you know what I mean, and an opinion that sort of sits with the music and what's best for the song. So, I think it's very important to have that, you know, fifth voice, if you like, the, you know, the fifth Beatle. It makes a lot of sense. And I think we really 
benefited from that because otherwise there would have been a lot more infighting. Um, <laughs> me and Kurt would have killed each other yeah. way before then. <laughs> um, but that, but that, um, uh, you know, that clashing, that sort of uh, push and pull of the band fighting for little bits and pieces or, or you know, sort of um, more say in a song was tempered by the producer. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know that obviously my bands were only ever at the independent level back when I was playing in bands. And I always found that we would just over instrumentalize the music for weeks and weeks or however long we had to record these projects. And then we would try to jam the vocals in in 10% of the project right at the end and expect them to come out as developed and as fully realized. And it may, in retrospect, be the fact that we needed someone that was maybe heavier handed with us because of the personalities yeah. in the band just to say, hey, I think those songs are done. How about we do the vocals now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, definitely, man, there's certainly a, um, I think learning to be a great communicator and, and or someone you really trust to the nth degree, you know, I mean, that's the producer's role essentially. And it broke down for us during Amago because we were working with Joe Baresi and he'd just come off the back of working with Tool and Queens of the Stone Age and we just hit a sour note like almost from the get-go and it just worked against us and it was a real slog to get through that. But I, I can totally sympathise. The vocals have been left pretty muchly to the end, to the last 10 days of recording and it's like, here's the 10 songs, now you've got to sing 10 songs in 10 days. And we're not talking about doing it once, twice through. We're talking about four to five hours each in the vocal booth. So, you are essentially doing four or five gigs every single day for 10 days. It's like, to <laughs> me, it'd be like, you know, it's possible to do, but the way that I vocalize, the way that I sing, you know, like I burnt my voice out in, um, I remember it was, we were doing The End, funnily enough, in LA at Sound City before they tore it down. And um, I was on the floor, I was so burnt out, I was on the floor with an SM7 in my hand, like screaming the last lyrics, the last lines. And Joe just said, he just hit stop on the, on the playback and just said, that's it. I was in the control room. And even Pete, the studio assistant, he just, he was like, whoa, man, what, dude, that's it. And that I cooked my voice. I, I knew, I think I instinctively knew I damaged it. I didn't know to the extent of which I damaged it, but then we went home and- did what rock, you know, want to be rock stars do and partied like dickheads were because uh, <laughs> we'd finished. Yeah. And, you know, we were really stoked with the product. But, yeah, so that's, yeah, it can work for and against you because if you're working with a producer or someone that's not into you or someone that's pushing against you, someone that the band doesn't trust, it's going to be a slog. So, choosing the right producer is key. Okay. So, I wasn't sure if we were going to go into that era too much mm. today, but now that we're there- when did you guys, and I'm sure you've spoken about this before, Clint, but I haven't come across it. When did you know maybe you were in an environment or with a producer or a team that wasn't maybe the right thing for the vision you had for Imago? Did you have that feeling early or did it develop or? Yeah, no, it happened really quickly. There was, obviously, there was, um, you know, problems in the in the band. So, there were relationship issues, like literally from the get-go, but- I remember Joe asked Benny to do to play a different riff or to do something and um, he just wasn't feeling confident with where he was at, I think, in his own head and just what he was playing and sort of Joe put down his legal, you know, his yellow legal pad and his pen and just went, just threw his hands up literally and just went, whatever, man. And that was, it was like two, two or three days in 
So, I think he felt really like we weren't the right band for him. He felt like, you know, he'd either been let down in some way. You know, we felt that we weren't connected to, like, the songs were great, mm. but we weren't connected as a unit. And I think the way that we write and the way that we, you know, craft songs was very different to the way that he worked. And so, those two things did not mesh at all and that created a rift and and it's like no one was to blame it's not anyone was overtly aggressive or mean or nasty it's just that the way that we both worked wasn't in sync and that it just unraveled from there so yeah because i do remember that yourselves carnival early dead letter circus cog amongst that entire i guess progressive adjacent genre in australia there was also this feeling of those bands and their producers, Forrester was probably, I'm assuming, the main guy for a lot of those albums at the time, particularly the big vocal albums, that you were so well integrated. It was like a magical relationship that a lot of those bands had had with this amazing person that happened to be based in Australia as well. Yeah, that's right. And then to go overseas and then maybe not have that when you're expecting maybe you're about to walk into an even more magical environment, that must have been a bit weird. Oh, 100%, man, because you have this idea in your head that exactly that, that you're going to walk in and this person's going to sprinkle this magic dust on your songs and it's going to go to the next level, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, when you don't have that or when you start uh, to realise that, you know, perhaps this isn't exactly where we wanted to be, it's quite isolating. You become quite lonely. You feel like really disconnected and disjointed to the songs. I remember saying like, I want more than 10 days to do these songs. I don't want to sing them back to back to back. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, that puts you in a, you know, negative headspace already because you're like, man, this is what I didn't want to do. <laughs> Whereas with Begins Here, we did it in small chunks. So, we did like three songs, you know, one month. The next month, we'd come back, we'd do another three because obviously, we were working with our manager, Dave Leonard, who um, owned the studio where we were working out of. So, you know, we pretty much- uh, had the run of the place and we could just call up and say, hey, man, we're, we're keen to do another three. So, yeah. then we'd go in and do another three, which it, it doesn't make economical sense to record that way. But because we had, you know, the keys to the to the <laughs> virtual kingdom, yeah. we could do whatever we wanted. So, that gives you great scope to really dismantle the songs even while you're recording them. But I think we were so on fire at that time and we knew the songs back to front we didn't have to we just walked in laid them down smashed them out i still remember singing the songs and and literally we'd have the the finished product that was it you know i mean i'd come in sing on the top of it do three versions we'd like comp i'd go back fix up a few things done that was it wow i really enjoyed making begins here and that's how we kind of made number four was yeah. we kind of bit it off in chunks you know we record a little bit over here a little bit over there and you're right about Forrester. Forrester is a friend of ours anyway. And we, the boys really trust his vision and his opinion and what he wants to, how he wants to hear the song, you know, how he actually gets the sounds. And like we worked mainly with Foz, but we also, you know, um, worked with Nick DeDia and, and I did some stuff with Matt Bartham down on the Gold Coast. And he does mainly like electronic music, but for vocals, because I just, we wanted to, sort of mix and match this time and, and try different things. Plus, we couldn't get Foz because he's doing a medical degree. So, um, <laughs> so you know, he's a very smart individual. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, kind of circling in back to the, the top of that one, a producer can really make a break. And I've read some 
great stories and some horror stories about bands that have just, you know, haven't had a good run. So, one thing that just occurs to me and... Hey guys, Future Josh here. Just jumping in. I'm still so happy that Clint felt comfortable enough to take us behind the scenes of Imago there. If you wanted to reach out to Clint online and say thank you too, not just on my behalf, but yours as well, at Clint Boge on Instagram. Now, Clint and I went into a conversation about putting really big vocals on records and fans turning up to shows really wanting to hear you do that. You recorded it. We want to hear you sing it. So let's jump back in with Clint and talk big vocals. I remember Chester Bennington saying someone was asking him early in their career or once they'd started touring for Hybrid Theory if they were going to sing Crawling Live because I don't think anyone had ever committed a vocal like that to tape before that. 100%, yeah. And he said, well, that's why people are coming, to see if I can actually do that. So, of course, I'm going to try to do it. Like, well, that's yeah, that's exactly right, and I think that's why people like Maynard stop moving around the stage mm. because it's so vocally challenging yep. to sing, especially their older songs. And I realised that my physicality was affecting my voice, so I've pretty much got to let put my faith in the production, which is the lighting, our lighting operator, who's one of the best in the world, mm. and and the put my faith in the in the force of the sound of the band and pretty much plant my feet and deliver the vocal, the vocals as best I can. So, and I think that that changes like when you're young, I was really into like running around the stage and amping up the crowd. Come on, let's go, you know. Now it's more about, it's becoming more about, you know, delivering a, a great show and a consistently excellent show every time. Rather than well, you know, look, I look at um, Winnie from Parkway, and he just he walks and he stands and he delivers. Obviously, we're not getting any younger. We'll leave that to the the younger kids. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's great to see because I love going to watch young bands. The energy that they exude is fantastic, yeah. and I love it. And it's good for them. You yeah. know what I mean? But the the older boys, we've got to <laughs> we can't jump around like we used. To. Plus, no one wants to see a nearly fifty year old dude jumping around the stage like that. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't anyway. No, correct. I remember what I saw at the drive-in at Big Day Out one time and I was like, oh, going off on stage is done. There is no there is yeah. no way to out intensity at the drive-in. So, maybe we maybe we can all calm down a bit. And then I saw a few Opeth clips and they're just more a stand and deliver. Here's the power of our songs. Mm. Like, oh, there's other ways to do it, not just we all have to try to be at the drive-in. Hundred percent, dude. I actually saw at the driving at Big Day Out. I think it was two thousand and three, and it was incredible, man. And I remember friends of mine were going over like back to the main stage. I was like, "What are you doing at the driving?" And it's funny because I actually said, "I said this is probably the only time you're ever going to see them," and it was because they broke up like shortly after. Their intensity was incredible. And then I went over and saw Mudvayne like shortly after that. I, I just thought I was stage yeah. hopping. And that was a lot yeah. of fun. So good. I have some of the best memories, not only for playing at Big Day Out, and that was a huge milestone for us as well, especially 2004, getting to hang out with Metallica and meeting all these uber famous people and, you know, ending up at after parties and in people's <laughs> hotel rooms and, you know, being silly and, and yeah. naughty was just incredible. It, it was like a dream come true and you pinch yourself sometimes because uh, for a lot of bands that never materialises and they never realise, you know, that- 
that dream. But um, something that I've often said to young musicians is, um, if I told you, you know, if I told you that releasing a, a CD and getting to play at your local, you know, years ago, would that be something that you would have thought was really cool? They go, yeah, exactly. I'm like, because you know the um, the the dream of limos and naked women getting around and 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 drugs and and you know um yeah <laughs> private jets and all that that's a just that's bollocks yeah. do you know what i mean even like the but the guys that are making great music don't live like yeah. that you know that was sold as a marketing strategy do you know what i mean to promote albums back in the yeah. day <laughs> and you look at all those guys now you look at where they are a lot of them are you know couldn't string a sentence yeah, together yeah. <laughs> so yeah, correct but yeah so like you know it's um yeah, it's such a it, it's it's been a hell of a ride, man, and and you know it, there's so many great milestones. And sorry, um, Clint was 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 2004 the big day out where Tool and Muse played back to back on the the main stage. Was that that? No, oh, that, that might have been uh, two, that might have been seven. Yeah, yeah. So Metallica was 2004. Right, yeah, because I yeah I remember there was just a string of huge. Huge lineups, but oh, that 2004 tour, man. I thought Muse were on that bill because I remember seeing them at the Hi-Fi bar to about a thousand people, and I swear they bought in half of their arena light show to that gig. I've never seen it. I mean, I've I never was, seen anything like there. it. I remember talking to you guys in the front bar of Sodans, and we're all in full Muse frenzy at the time, but just going on about the bass sound, how it was just unbelievable bass tone, like yep. just next yep. level. Yeah, spot on. <laughs> Yeah, I still remember going to that hi-fi gig and it was when they started um, and the oh. lights were shooting down like this because we were up in the um, the VIP section up the top watching it and the sound in there was incredible as well. Just every time those guys did something at that particular time, it was incredible to us and I don't think the Muse album came out of the, the van um, on that whole run. And I, by the end of it, I couldn't listen to Muse anymore. I'm like, I, I just- yeah. <laughs> I spent a month in the tour yeah, yeah. van with nothing but Muse and we did the same thing to Kurt with Silverchair's Diorama. We absolutely killed him yeah. with that. <laughs> and then the other album that didn't come out of the van was uh, Between Birth and Death by St. Okay. Lotto. Yeah, that, that's a and classic. And I think those, yeah, those albums, man. <laughs> oh, that's still, to me, St. Lotto's Between Birth and Death is still one of the best heavy albums of all time anywhere in the world in my view. It is quintessential- Oh, it's oh, I can't even oh, yeah. Words escape me because it's that good. Hey guys, future Josh here again. Please do go and check out Sunk Lodo's Between Birth and Death. Ever since Clinton mentioned that record, I've been given that a fair spin. It's even better than I remember it being. So if you want to talk about that or anything else from today's episode, at Joshua C Liston on Instagram for me. And we're about to go into a part of the interview where Clint and I were talking about positive nostalgia. And I had a personal friend that went and saw the butterfly effect late last year in 2022. And she came back just with this glow from getting to experience something that had meant so much to her for so long. And it was really an exciting thing to be around. So we're going to jump back in with Clint. Let's talk some positive nostalgia. And she came back and that's all she was talking about was just how fun it was, yeah. how positively nostalgic it was too because you guys played all the songs 
her and a lot of the fans wanted to hear and you did it so well still. So I think that is a, a different kind of impact on people than pure sales or streams. Like that's a lifelong connection. 100%. So. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's what we get from a lot of those bands that fly, you know, fly under the radar essentially mm -hmm. and that aren't given critical and commercial acclaim. It's interesting. When we first started, it was Dave said to us, he said, do you want a fast burning career or do you want to slow burn and last for 20 odd years and still be relevant, <laughs> you know, in two decades or three decades? And we we all put up a hand and said, we'll take the, the long burn, please. Yeah. And he said, but you guys won't be famous. You won't be rich. You won't be, he said, but you will change and touch people's lives. And we all opted for that one. And it's to that point, it's- so much more rewarding than any monetary gain I could have got. Do you know what I mean? Because m money doesn't, in my mind, doesn't really exist anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's it's this like this construct of capitalism. Anyway, that's a whole other yeah. thing. But do you know what I mean? Like the the real value is the human emotion that attaches to the music that you produce. Like that's the real stuff. That's the real currency, and that's everlasting. That yeah. never goes away. So, and case in point. Someone asked me what's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to you in music and they said, you know, listing off things, big day outs and gold albums and European tours and and meeting your heroes and blah, blah, blah. I said, no, it was the first time a young girl wrote to me and said, um, your music saved my life. And she said, I was going to end it all. I listened to Begins here one more time and decided to that I had to hang around and hear the next oh, thing. Lovely. And that to me is worth so much more than any monetary gain I could have gotten anywhere. And I think to musicians, that is, that's what we all strive for, that, that connection. And it comes back to community and it comes back to like acceptance and how we see ourselves because a lot of musicians, especially that I know, were either bullied or they were very insular or, you know, not everyone, mm -hmm. but a lot of people were. And it was a way to seek acceptance from our peers. I mean, that's how it starts. But then you realize that there's so much more to it and it becomes like therapy. It's cathartic. You know, you've got to do it. It's just inside you. It has to come out. And so, I would say again to young musicians, do not be afraid to express yourself and to let that out. Do you know what I mean? And to let other people see you and to let other people feel you and hear you because that is so important. And the thing is, you could inadvertently or advertently um, save someone's life whether, you know, literally or metaphorically, and that would be a huge waste if you didn't put it out there. It doesn't mean everyone's going to hear it. It doesn't mean people are going to listen to it. It doesn't mean, you know, everyone's going to like it, but that's not the point. And so, that's what I would say also to young musos. That's pretty powerful, mate. And it makes me think of why I started stand-up. It's the scariest thing I've ever done, and I thought music was hard, but there's a certain thing about stand-up that's just, it's harder in a different way. And, yeah. but it goes back to when I was in Melbourne, I wasn't having the greatest time down there. I moved there with probably not enough money and it's cost money to breathe down in the big city. And yeah. I was living with my little brother at the time. And I remember listening to Bill Burr and watching his early specials. Love and him. Love him. Yeah. For that period of time, I wasn't thinking about all this stuff that was occupying my mind. I was just laughing at a guy took me a couple of years to get up there. Well, it took me about five years to be courageous enough to step on the stage. But I thought if I could even just make one person laugh the way he made me laugh, I'm never going to be Bill Burr. There's yeah. only one Bill Burr. But if I could do that for a small handful of, of people, that would be worthwhile. 
And then it, it ended up being such Man. a thrill. I, I, I probably underestimated the thrill, but that's what got me into it. So That's awesome. Man, that's, it takes such courage to do that. Do you know what I mean? And you challenged yourself and you over- overcame a what could be considered a huge social um, hurdle. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And not only that, and then you reap the reward from that. Because if you get a couple of laughs, it just inspires you to keep going yeah. and do more. But also it's the the confidence that you build into your psyche, you know, your, your own self. It's that uh, and you change and you start to um, morph into a different person, which is amazing. And that's part of our evolution, yeah. right? If we if we cease to grow, if we cease to continue to evolve, then what are we? <laughs> Correct. You know what I mean? So, I would like to finish up, Clint, on maybe something a little less evolved, and that's talking about <laughs> a gig at Soden's Hotel, mid-2000s, that you described as, quote, the hottest gig I've ever played, unquote, and that was at the time. And I'll fill in a few details here, but do you remember that absolute sweat factory of the Soden's band room? Damn straight I do, man. <laughs> I remember, I can remember that gig from the minute I walked on stage yeah. <laughs> to the minute I walked off about five kilos less than yeah. I walked on. I gave a girl, literally gave a fan a fan and said, follow me wherever yeah. I go. And this young girl <laughs> has got this fan and she's just walking along in the, in the crowd in the punter yeah. barrier. Following me, and I stripped down to my jocks. I was standing there in my bloody yeah. boxes. <laughs> the walls and the ceiling were dripping with sweat and condensation. It was the best night and one we've talked about so <laughs> yeah. often. And not only you guys were amazing and looking after us, there was like icy cold beer. I think we pushed the beer to the side and dunked our heads in the ice yes. buckets. I'm not even joking. <laughs> so that's what you'll rarely see musos push beer to the side to get it ice yeah. water. The uh, the crowd, people still talk about it. People still come up to us today and say, I was at the Soden's gig yeah. <laughs> when you guys were, oh, man, it yeah. was one of the best nights. And then we went out afterwards and it just, it got debaucherous yes. from there. But, it but you know, because we're five kilos less of yes. fluid, one beer goes in <laughs> and you're suddenly loopy as <laughs> shit. We loved yeah, it, one of my- It was the best. There was two two days. One was watching Bliss and Esso and True Live play a gig together. They played a set yeah. together and True Live, for people that aren't familiar, were a band where they had a cello player who played through like a rat distortion pedal and these really talented, almost like jazz musicians that were in the hip-hop world and then Bliss and Esso were, other than Hilltop Hoods, were probably the biggest hip-hop band in the country and they played a one-off show together at Soden's and then played half their set together. That one sticks out and then there was your Sweat Factory gig. Yeah. Like I was, it <laughs> was what, brutal but amazing. You know what's interesting about that is, um, uh, we were talking to the guys from She Had. So and Johnny Too Good was telling us about this gig that they played in this like the hottest venue in the world. And I said, um, and I was like asking him about it. You know, I think it was like they played at the zoo in Brisbane one summer, and the air conditioning broke. Actually, I don't even think they had air conditioning at the time. But anyway. <laughs> Johnny said he got down to his undies and was literally running around and he said it was the best. And he said, if you ever get the chance to do it, you know, sort of yep. thing. I never thought I would, to yep. be honest. But I remember that and I thought, well, if it's good enough for Johnny Too Good, then it's bloody well good yeah. enough for me. He's probably and, the um, greatest frontman of Australian rock, so. <laughs> he's just, he's electric. Yep. When they brought out General Electric, I remember thinking what an aptly titled album for this band. I still love them. I've always loved them. They're brilliant people. First and foremost, they are great guys, but they are one of the New Zealand's best exports in my view. 
it's still this the general electric still stacks up oh. today and i i love it i listen to it at least once a year but when we had that chat and he was telling me about being at the zoo and stripping off and i thought yeah well if I ever get the chance to do that one day, I'm going to yeah. do it. I'm not going to, you know, shy away from it. And it happened to be yeah. so <laughs> when the walls were yes. sweating and there was so much condensation. It was like rain falling from yeah. the ceiling. I think we we probably had, well, it was yeah, sold out. Would have I been remember that. And it was people, I think, was selling. Yeah. And it was a very warm mm. night. And, you know, for Victoria, you just don't think, you know, like New South Wales, Victoria, like that borderline, you don't think that it's going to be no. hot. But it was just an unusually warm yes. evening and we happened to be the band. And not only that, we were using old production too, man, those old park hands on the side of the stage. Ooh, baby. Yeah, and, and you guys didn't go light on production. Let's be honest. You bought it all in. Man, we <laughs> we actually, yeah, it was funny because our lighting operator was like, hey, man, we've got too much stuff. We like put it on put the it stage. In. Just put it yeah, on the yeah. stage, dude. And just to finish <laughs> up, Clint, you, obviously you guys are amazing live. And I'll just get to my last question in a sec regarding live performance. But I remember that night, and I'm not sure whether it was 100% accurate, but I know at least on that tour, you hadn't consumed a beer on stage. And I'm not sure whether you'd ever consumed a beer on stage in a Butterfly Effect gig up until that night. But I think it was the only liquid that you could access from the stage. And you were that hot. You're like, I'm having a beer. And obviously, Aubrey being Aubrey, they absolutely loved that. He's having a beer for us, like just for us. It's that hot. Yeah, dude. <laughs> no, that's true because we we actually didn't drink on yeah. stage at all. It was kind of like this little rule we had for a while there because, you know, we wanted everything to be the performance and we wanted to do it sober and straight and make sure that we gave everything. And plus, the physicality that it took to play those songs, you couldn't be- high or drunk because it just it doesn't yeah. work and not only that you'll you wreck yeah. yourself um but i remember i broke the rule you're right i broke the rule that night i said bugger it i'm having a beer i don't give <laughs> yeah. a rats and i think i think that sort of started yeah. the um having a beer on stage yeah. thing and and it became uh it's quite synonymous now when we play in adelaide i'll always <laughs> crack a crack a beer on stage but i, I can't scull them anymore because obviously i've got to keep yeah. singing and i just end up burping yeah. and almost throwing up <laughs> throughout the set and it's just yeah it's funny but no you're right i did and i i, st <laughs> I still remember i think there was someone down the front with a beer and i just literally launched myself at them Correct. and grabbed yeah. it and and, and, and i think drank you made it. i think you made that person's world because if the floor wasn't covered in sweat they would have got down and bowed to you in that moment yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll be bowing back so yeah man it was one of the best nights and something we still talk about it like even today it, it goes down it has gone down in history as one of our favorite all-time gigs and i think the only other gig that was that hot was the barwon club in geelong on a very yes. hot uh that geelong night hot in club. victoria yes. when uh we've sold it out for the first mm. time and the same sort of thing. We put as many lights as we could and the crowd were literally on top of us. I was, I had people like right there in front <laughs> of me. And it's quite confronting when you're pouring your heart out and you've got some sweaty- yeah. Breaching out and throwing sweat in your hairy, face. Hairy ass dude. <laughs> yeah. So, Clint, uh, just to finish up, I know you've got a tight timeline on your finish. I just wanted to ask, now that you're heading back out on tour and you guys, if nothing else, were known as being a band no one wanted to follow- because you were so great live, and yeah. from the vocals to the guitar sound, like we were just worshipping the live guitar sound because it was so much more refined than other bands that we were hearing mm -hmm. live at the time. Is there anything that has you excited about modern production versus back then and anything you don't like? Because I remember watching Bring Me the Horizon last year at Good Things, and they looked amazing mm -hmm. and they sounded amazing, 
but as a musician and guitar player, I could tell that a lot of it was just tracks. Oh, I mean, I don't know if you yeah, have a man, feeling on right. that, and I don't want you to tell us how much of that you guys are using, if any, but is there anything about going out on tour that's changed that you're excited or not about? Yeah, no, man, I think, like, tracks are good where used lightly, I mm. would say, you know, when they're used appropriately, I would yeah. say. So, we use, like, we've got, like, just a few little bits of extra, you know, like, you know, there might be like a polyrhythm or a, you know, counter melody going over the top. Pianos, obviously, we can't take those yeah. with us. Although we've got some surprises for the crowds for the Begins Here tour nice. in February. So, just orchestration, the trumpet. and But there's only like a few backing vocals that go on the top because Kurt is very much old school. He wants the band to sound like it is live but as close to the album but in a live mm -hmm. format, which I love. So we've we've not opted in the past to go with tracks and or many tracks, but it doesn't bother me when other bands no. do it really, except for if it's too overdone and they're using the tracks that they produced in the studio. It sounds too polished, too shiny, and it takes away the authenticity and that visceral. I'm watching a rock band who's blowing yeah. me away, and it turns it into I'm kind of watching these four guys mime to the studio. Mm. A live film album, clip. <laughs> which doesn't sit with- Yeah, that's right. So, it's got to blend properly. So, you still like- um, I went and saw Bad Omens at the Trifford in Brisbane when they come out for Knotfest. I love Bad Omens. I think they're an amazing band. Beautiful but it just sounded list, to yeah. me like- Ah, oh, yeah, they're brilliant. But it just sounded to me too produced. And even his vocal sound, I was just like, man, I want to hear the- the roar of it, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, um, I uh, went to Knotfest and watched Spirit Box and, and Courtney's vocals were live and you could tell because you could hear her kind of, you know, getting struggling for breath to get to certain points. And they had tracks running, but it wasn't, you know, down the front you were still getting that blast of yeah. real instrument mm. and it sounded that way. So, even if bands are using tracks, that's fine. Just make them sound, just dirty them up. Make them sound like they're real and live, but also layer your live sound yeah. into it. You know, and that creates a wall of sound. But then again, you run into the, you know, the, the old trap of more is too much. Do you know what I mean? So, it's like if you put more in, you're going to lose that oomph and that power. And that's what I would say also to young bands when recording. You know, make it full but not too full that you lose everything yeah. else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because then it wrecks the sound and it sort of takes away from the energy. Yeah. And also when we've been recording and we can't get the power out of something, we start taking stuff out. or. Yeah, wow moving the levels and dropping them down. So, that's what I would say. Like, it doesn't excite me or make me feel either way. It's just it has to be done. It's disappointing when bands don't do it right because they're, you know, pushing for a certain sound because I still want it live to be live. Like, I want to hear slight mistakes. I don't mind that. I don't mind if I hear the singer huffing yeah. and puffing. You know, I don't mind if, uh, you know, when you watch, I don't know, pick a band. I remember going to see Sepultura ages ago and you could hear the actual the hitting of the pick on the strings and mm. the kind of, you know, the fluff, uh, slight fluff notes or the dampening of it or, you know, whatever. That shit excites me and still does yeah. today. Because, you know, if I want to hear the album, I'll go and listen to it. I'll grab the yeah. CD. And bands have to remember that. Do you know what I mean? We're live. It's about being mm. live. And that's just my personal opinion. That's just the way I like it. Some people might like it the other way, you yeah. know, but that's, uh, that's just me. Yeah, I think it probably goes back to the she had thing that we talked about. They don't put everything in. To an album that they may be able to in terms of layers and tracks and overdubs but then they just have this in enormous raw live sound that can just floor 100%. you but you also know yeah that is a one-off unique experience 
whether it's as perfect or not as an album reproduction, you were there when it happened that one way. Oh, and that's the stuff that you go home and tell people about. You say, I was there the night that blah. He climbed on the ceiling and dived into the drum kit. Like, <laughs> and then what, what happens to the song? It goes, you yeah. know, then, then you see like the, you know, the stage guys yeah, scrambling yeah. to put stuff back together. That's the shit. That's the good stuff. And I think, you know, overproduced heavy music has lost some of that because they're trying to be so perfect every night. Like, be consistent yeah. and be consistently excellent. But I think- Having differences in the show certainly make for a greater experience, and that's the stuff you remember. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, Clint, thanks so awesome. much for joining me on the show. It's been amazing. Where can people find out about what you're doing? I listened to a couple of your solo albums in the lead up to this, and they're they're oh, yeah. well, for lack of a better term, they're quite beautiful audio sort of experiences. And I think if you're a Butterfly Effect fan, you'll hear maybe some melodic tinges that are similar, but it's also was really good just to sit and prepare the notes for today, just having it play in the background. So that was a, a little discovery I might not have made if we weren't having this conversation. So that was awesome. Yeah, no, and I love it's that. it's at Clint Boge, B-O-G-E on Instagram. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And all those other places that you'll find me. If you just go to the website, I think there's links to like Facebook and uh, Instagram. I'm not really tech savvy, I'll be yeah. honest. It's one of my downfalls because I just I'd rather be making music than posting stuff. To well, that's what it's all about in Instagram. the end. So as long as you can get around, yeah. shoot it up a guitar, you're probably fine. So <laughs> that's right it, on. man. I love well, it. But man, hey, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's really good chatting. to see you, and all the best with the tour. I I do know some people in my world, even a guy in my own band, that's super stoked about the fact you're getting back out and doing shows. So it's going to be gold, man. Can't wait. See you, Clint. Thank you. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, Bye -bye. buddy. See you, mate.